it's been made easier for central banks in the last six months than it was because the more direct inflationary pressures from energy have fallen away. Now that, I think, is not to say that they might not come back again. And where China is going on gas and in, in general parts of the state of the Chinese economy is, is going to be like an important like part of that. So a weaker China will probably keep that source of inflation at bay and then that means that we go a little bit longer, some time longer perhaps, before we run into like, okay, what's the point where central banks want to be raising rates and they really run into a serious risk of financial market instability? Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Helen Thompson. Helen is Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University. She's been at Cambridge since 1994. Her current research focuses on the political economy of energy and the long history of the democratic, economic, and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. She is also the author of the book Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, which was published last year. Helen, great to have you. How, how are you doing? Good. It's a pleasure to be with you, Alan. Good stuff. Well, we always start off by just getting a sense of our guests' uh, background. So maybe if you could just tell us how you got into you know, analysing macroeconomics and political economy and, and why you've chosen to focus on political economy, I guess. I think that when I realized that I might be interested in uh, pursuing an academic career, I was thinking about various possible you know, dissertation, PhD dissertation topics. And I came to the view that I wanted to do something about the United Kingdom's relationship with the European Union. This was 1990. And it was just after, or in the time I was thinking about it, uh, when the UK had joined the European exchange rate mechanism. And I knew that there'd been a very considerable political debate over pretty much a decade within the Conservative government, which is Margaret Thatcher's government, about that and that it had been very divisive. And after some arming and arming, 
I decided that that's what I would focus my attention on, trying to explain why the Conservative government had in some ways come apart over the exchange rate mechanism issue. Obviously, the monetary union issue that went with it or came to went with it um, precipitated the end of Margaret Thatcher's premiership. And then as I was writing the PhD about two years in, then the UK left the exchange rate mechanism on um, Black Wednesday. So I kind of got into it all, I think, that way by understanding just how deeply significant this, on the surface, technical question about monetary policy was, um, not just for Britain's relationship with the European Union, but for understanding British politics itself. So that was really my way in. I largely, I think, concentrated on a set of issues about monetary policy, international financial openness, and how that historically had changed through the, the 20th century for the first more than a decade, of my, perhaps a decade and a half, um, getting on for two decades, really, of my academic career, probably two decades. And then around 2013, I got interested in energy. And notably, the way into that for me uh, actually was, again, on the monetary financial side because I became increasingly aware about that time, just how much the American shale oil boom, jungle gas boom, was like dependent upon the post-2008 monetary and financial environment. And then I, I suppose I had a set of like awakenings as I realized just how much energy central it was to everything uh, in terms of the way we live our lives and to political economy. And that it was quite notable that a lot of political economy doesn't pay that much attention to energy. Obviously, I think that's changed because energy has come back to the, the surface, particularly since Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine, but also in a way because of net zero. But I realized that you did need to think about energy macroeconomically, but just as importantly, you need to think about it geopolitically. So I started trying to teach myself around 2013, 14, to try to think geopolitically as well. Very good. And obviously, as we mentioned, you booked, you published uh, the book uh, Hard Times, um, or Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century last year. And energy is a big focus of, of that book. And I guess if I was to, I mean, my reading of it, 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 the book sets out to try and explain some of the key economic and uh, political developments in the 2010s uh, using the, the, the lens of history. And... Uh, and, and maybe your point is that the, the conventional explanation doesn't go far enough. So you map out these alternative histories, one focused on energy, one focused on the international monetary order, and, and the other focused on the development of, of, of democracies. I mean, why did you write the book? What was the message that you were trying to, to deliver with that book? Yeah, well, you're right, Alan. I, I started off really with the uh, desire to write a long history of the 2010s particularly pivoted around 2016 as a series of shocks. And I thought about that as the Brexit shock, the Trump shock, and perhaps as importantly, the failed coup in Turkey in, in 2016 at the time, that that was quite an important part in my thinking in, in pushing me to think about the book disorder in the way in which that I did. I had an idea initially that I was going to have a fourth component to it, which was going to be about essentially the relationship between like long cultural history and the 
territorial politics, not just in Europe, but to some extent in the United States, uh, as that was thing. I saw it in the in the in the two thousand and tens, but I decided that that was like way too ambitious, and that actually I was going to keep the book and largely they're not exclusively like materialist focused. And when that came into sort of focus in my mind, then I thought, well, actually. I'm going to double down on what I've got to say about energy. And I'm not going to use energy to try to explain everything. Um, that doesn't make, I think that's wrong. And it wouldn't, uh, uh, there's a lot that happened in the 2010s that you wouldn't be able to explain, particularly, I think, the relationship between democracy and nationhood. But I thought that it wasn't possible in the geopolitical sense to understand the 2010s at all without coming to terms with the fact that the United States had become a major energy producer. And I didn't think it was possible to think about that. And this goes back to my initial, how I got into the subject, without seeing the relationship between possibility of American shale oil gas boom and the post-2008 financial um, environment. So I will find a way of both making energy quite central to what I wanted to do, but also and this was pretty important to me, find ways of like explaining how the interactions between seemingly different events and different structural forces were playing out. So that it didn't make sense to try to understand the middle of the 2010s without understanding the big picture economic environment. Obviously that brought in questions about China as well, but then as soon as you get into China, you get back energy because if the big turn in the 2010s was the United States returning to be such a large-scale oil and gas producer, the big turn in the 2000s was the big increase in China's energy, foreign energy demand. So obviously, um, and I think I heard you speak about this elsewhere as well, you know, what you're alluding to, I think there as well, is is, is the the very low rate environment and, and the cheap, cheap, cheap cost of capital was, I guess, a key contri- contributor to the U.S. shale boom. And, and obviously then, and that had ramifications elsewhere from a, from a geopolitical perspective. But w- one of the interesting features of the book, I thought, was how you map out how the U.S. kind of initially sought to push the EU away from um, consumption of Russian energy towards the Middle East, but how that ultimately broke down around the time of of, of the Suez Crisis, um, and and this I guess has highlighted this European dependence on Russian energy, which is obviously very timely. I think the book the book came out just as, around the time of of, of it came the out invasion. on the day of the invasion. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it was very timely in that respect. So I mean. Europe then appeared to dodge a bullet, I I guess. There was a lot of pessimism around this time last year about the outlook for for Europe going into the winter and that managed to get, you know, sufficient uh, LNG to to bring us through through the winter. Where where do you see Europe's oil dependence now or situation? Is is that as as difficult as it was last year or or do you think we've seen genuine improvements on that score? Well, I think that if we go back to what happened um, last year, we need, I think, to recognise several things, and they're different in regard, I think, both to oil and to gas. If we take um, oil first, um, I think it's important to see that there were several things that helped Europe considerably, in fact, helped the world economy in some ways um, very considerably. The first of them was the fact that China continued with zero COVID policies 
through most of 2022. So China's demand for oil was relatively weak, certainly compared to what it had been in 2021, where it looked like China was making a more rapid recovery from the uh, pandemic in economic terms, I mean by that, than, than other um, countries. And the fact that the Biden administration took the decision to release quite considerable volume of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And so in that sense, the United States was acting as an emergency supplier or emergency provider of last resort, if you like, um, to the oil markets um, through last year. And that is not something that Europe contributed to solving its own problems. That's something for which it was benefiting from what Biden decided um, to do. Even allowing for that, we can still see that actually quite considerable amount of Russian oil made its way into Europe. Not because European countries didn't reduce their imports of Russian crude, they did. Not all of them, particularly the ones coming from pipeline landlocked countries like Hungary. But what we can see is is that European uh, companies were buying refined oil as petroleum products, particularly actually from India companies, and then it was coming back into which was refined from Russian crude. I mean, India went from a country that was scarce buying any Russian crude prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine to a country that's significant part of Russia's uh, crude oil market um, now. So Europe was still using rather more Russian oil than seemed on the, the surface. I think the, the question about gas was more dramatic for obvious reasons and because so much uh, came in, Russian gas came into Europe via um the pipelines. Uh, and ironically, you know, by sort of some point in the latter part of 2022, practically the only gas that was coming through pipelines was coming through Ukraine, which were the ones that uh, the pipeline, the very pipelines that Putin has spent in the best part of two decades uh, trying to basically get out, get out of the picture. What we can see here, I think, is that first of all, there is still Russian gas coming to European countries and particularly in the form of liquid natural gas and actually probably um, Russian liquid natural gas sales to European countries increased during the course of 2022. It looks like particularly that they went to, to Spain, Portugal perhaps as well and certainly France. So again, what looks like on the surface is straightforward, oh we're turning it back on Russian energy, turns out not quite to be the case. Then there was a the fact that the second, I think, and this was quite a significant contingency, I think, was the fact that the, the winter in Europe was, as we know, really quite mild. It was one of the mildest winters in, um, in decades. And then I think the China question is, again, really crucial here because what we see in 2022 is, is that China's actual overall consumption of gas fell and its demand for liquid natural gas fell quite considerably. So I think it fell pretty consistently every month from February 2022 through to a year later. It escalated again quite considerably in March um, of this year. But if we then go back to what was causing the gas problems for Europe and indeed for other Asian countries, for Asian countries, I should say, in the latter part, second half of 2021, it was China's sharp increase in liquid natural gas imports, about 15% year on year at that point. So what we see in 2023 is, is that as 
European, what I sometimes call like Eurasian structural competition for liquid natural gas supply intensified after the 24th of February of 2022. The European countries essentially won it. Either they did it because China got cautious, also effects here of, of zero um, COVID, but it also came at the price of shutting out some Asian countries, notably I would say Pakistan, after all the fifth largest uh, country in terms of population in, in the world, uh, a country that at the beginning of 2022 had an energy mix of which gas was more than 40%, was effectively shut out of markets. Um, essentially, it was more profitable for companies, liquid natural gas companies, to break their long-term contracts with Pakistan and just to put the point schematically, sell it on the spot market to German companies. So whilst Europe got through in this respect, it did it on the back of really quite significant pain being inflicted on poor countries. And I don't think that that should be forgotten when we want to tell ourselves a kind of somewhat congratulatory, self-congratulatory story we in Europe got through and wasn't as bad as everybody said. Yeah. And I mean, from an economic perspective, um, I think I was reading recently, there's, there seemed to have some been some economic adjustment as well, particularly in Europe, in terms of some uh, energy intensive industries scaling back output or, or maybe being no longer longer viable. And then I guess that raises the overall question, you know, th there was quite a lot of pessimism over the last number of months about the, the German economic model, you know, in simple terms, using Russian uh, energy sources to produce industrial goods for, for China. So, so feeling strains on both sides of that. Is that a, a valid uh, perspective or overly simplistic? Or do you think there is a, a longer term structural challenge there for, for Germany and more broadly Europe, given that Germany is at the core of Europe, uh, given those two uh, tensions? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I'm not sure I go as far as thinking that Germany is deindustrializing, which is sometimes the language that is put on um, that. But yeah, if you look at, say, a company the, like the chemical company BASF, it's, it's pretty clear that the end of pipelined Russian gas for them was a major business shock. And that it came at a time when they were already believing that they were, I mean, not unreasonably, I would say, disadvantaged in industrial competition with the United States because the effect of domestically produced shale gas for the US has been that gas costs in industry are a lot lower in the United States than they are in either Europe or in uh, Asia. You know, it's quite simply a lot better from that point of view to have a, a domestic shale supply than it is to have to uh, import a lot particularly by liquid, by ma ma maritime um, gas. And obviously some of those pipelines that came from Russia, they, they quite you know, literally went to BASF plants. I mean, it was very well set up for a company like BASF um, to function in, 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 um, in gas um, terms. So I think that it's not at all surprising um, that the brunt of the reduction in consumption in Europe, gas consumption, I mean by that, was borne by the industrial companies and companies like BASF. And I think you can that also had some knock-on consequences for um, the rest of the world, poorer countries in particular, because if you have European chemical companies who aren't producing fertilizers any longer because 
the it's too expensive in 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 energy terms, and then they're buying fertilizers on the world market. That that has an effect for countries who again get priced out of those markets. So I do think the effects were quite systemic. They just necessarily they weren't necessarily uh, hitting Europe as directly as they were actually uh, hitting others. But I think that if we then think about the f- the future and we uh, look at the gas position of Europe compared to the United States, we would have to say that Europe is at a disadvantage has been a, and that that disadvantage has been compounded by the events of the last year or um, so. It was already there because of the fact that the United States is where gas is concerned, pretty much self-sufficient and it's relatively um, cheap and Europe's need collectively to import gas has been going up for um, some time and its major supply in the cheapest way possible from pipelines from Russia has now, for most European countries, not all obviously, been taken out of the picture. And I mean, we're talking about uh, the, the impact on, on the industrial sector. And I guess one of the interesting themes that we've seen in the last couple of years, I guess, partially in response to, 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 to COVID, um, but, but maybe it has uh, longer um, origins, is, is kind of the, the re- rebirth of industrial policy, I guess, and biodynamics. Um, and we've got kind of the Sullivan Doctrine in, in, in the US and, you know, a, a kind of a a focus now on on, on cultivating uh, in production in certain sectors, and you know, obviously the US offering subsidies, etc., for for certain types of um, production of in, in EVs, etc., and uh, we're starting to see a, a response to that in in Europe as well. I mean, if you look at the the, the kind of the factors that drove your analysis in in the book, um, how do you, how do you relate those factors? Well, like, where has this come from? Do you think that this shift to industrial policy that we haven't seen for, for for a number of decades? Yeah, I think if we look at this in terms of the United States, we can see that it's being directed at multiple problems, and I'm thinking particularly here, obviously, of the Inflation Reduction Act. You say what its purpose is? It's obviously primarily, in that sense, to address the climate crisis. But it's certainly serving some shorter-term political purposes than that. The first of them, I would say, is is that it's a geopolitical move against China. It's uh, driven by the knowledge that China is dominating the low-carbon energy supply chains, not least in relation to metal extraction and, in particular, actually metal processing, and that the United States' present ability to move to low carbon energy and i mean by that both actually wind and solar generated electricity and electrifying what's previously been done by fossil and fuels is dependent upon importing various goods and materials this rare earth minerals from china and that's a completely unsatisfactory state of affairs um in um, in washington they're not willing to let China w- win the geopolitical game around low energy, sorry, low carbon um, energy. Second, I would say is is that it's being um, directed at the 
political problem in the United States of trying to avoid a repetition of 2016 and Trump's successful insurgent candidacy then. And this isn't just about Trump, it's about anybody, I think, um, coming along as a candidate from outside the existing party structure and mobilizing the grievances of those who lost out in terms of, let's call it globalization for um, shorthand, particularly the loss of manufacturing jobs in that period from about 2000 to 2003, where there really was a pretty sharp reduction in manufacturing jobs um, in the United States that Trump was still a decade or so later able to exploit and to win first the Republican nomination and then the presidency. So it was an attempt, I think, to put a bulwark against that. And in doing so, in the United States case as well, I think trying to kind of like resurrect an idea of economic nationhood, the kind of um, project that Franklin Roosevelt had of saying, you use the power of the state to try to create some sense that there's a political community that shares economic interests. But this time, doing so in a much more racially inclusive way than was the case with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. So it's got that sort of climate justice element to it well. So in reshoring manufacturing to the United States, or hoping to reshore manufacturing to the United States, it is trying to, in some sense, stabilise the American Republic, as well as deal with China as a competitor, as well as, 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 as deal with the climate crisis. So, I mean, it sounds like it's obviously partially, you know, a, a political project, as, you, as you're saying, but, but then obviously as well, it, it, it partially reflects, the, you know, deglobalization um, and, and the nearshoring, et cetera. I mean, deglobalization has been the, the kind of the buzzword in the last year, but it, it is disputed. You know, there is a debate about how real it is. Um, What's your sense on that? I mean, some people might suggest it's more de-signification as opposed to de-globalization. Uh, do you think it is? Uh, is the world fragmenting into separate economic um, uh, components or, or blocks, um, or, or, or is it more, or, or is it just uh, kind of more changes at the margin? I think that this is this is quite like a complicated question. I think if you like look to like say energy itself, you'd say that the patterns of trade are being reconfigured, particularly where oil, well, that's where both where oil and gas are concerned, but they're not necessarily becoming less global. So for instance, if you look at where China has signed, well, Chinese companies have signed long-term gas contracts in the last couple of years, more than 40% of them have been with American companies. So that wouldn't, I mean, that's a risk from China's point of view, but that doesn't really suggest like decoupling. I think more broadly, I think that there's a, a, a basic tussle conflict being played out between states, if you like, politicians leading states, particularly in obviously the United States, by an administration and the companies and so, and it's not so clear to me who's in the end going to like win this. So I think you can see obviously lots of pressure being put on companies to decouple and de-risk at the very least. But are they really doing that? I mean, is Apple really moving out away from China? It's something that's fundamental to its business model. 
you take go back to the ASF, you know, it's in the process of building a Chinese plant that's about the size of its biggest one in Germany. I mean, I, I understand that that's caused quite a lot of division within the company, but at the moment, it's not the ones who are nervous about that who are who are like winning out. And I think if you like look historically, you can see that this is kind of might be expected. You know, if you go back and look at American companies like in the 1930s, as some of the big companies uh, after the Nazis came to power, whatever the foreign policy of the Roosevelt administration, it wasn't like we're jumping out of Germany as quickly as possible. Because obviously these are big changes that corporations have to make, even more so now, I'd say, than was the case in the in the 1930s. So I, I think that we're going to see a struggle as to whether, how long corporations, or maybe they can win. I'm not saying that they can't win, if you see what I mean. I think it's a bit, it's a bit unclear, but I certainly don't think just because the politicians in various capitals starting with China say, um, we want you to be less dependent upon China, that that means that we're going to get all the companies saying, yes, 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 that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to jump into, in, in, into line with your geopolitical um, priorities, particularly because in some cases, like if you start to try and like replicate, even if it's not in relation to China, say Taiwan, you try to replicate high-end semiconductor chips, the kind of things that Taiwan manufacturing companies, it's incredibly, I mean, you can't do that with any alacrity if you can do it at all. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, certainly there does seem to be a recognition um, of you know the, the limits of of, of globalization in, in the sense that you know you go back 15, 20 years or whenever it was, and you, you know uh, the book, you know the world is flat, and it, we were going to have this seamless global trade, and and obviously what we've seen with COVID, and and now obviously with the with the invasion is 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 the risks of global integration. Was the West naive in the first place? In, in a, I guess what was underpinning all of this was the assumption that you know, Chinese economic development would probably lead to greater freedom in China and maybe some form of democracy. And, and obviously, as Xi Jinping has come into power, that 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 hasn't you know well has never really moved in that direction. Was there a naivety in, in the first place there, or, or or why have we seen that that kind of belief in globalization being being, being rolled back? I think it's a it was a mixture of naivety and um, interest in the sense that you know there, there were let's just say a class of people who benefited from the arrangements that were made with China. If you look at I mean Apple's like a a good example of that. It allowed it to be a really different company than what it was when essentially it was a kind of made in America um, kind of company. And I think that. Partly um, what happened in this respect is, is that the naivety came not so much in the sense of, say, someone like Bill Clinton being naive about the geopolitics of US-China, but being a bit on the naive side about the domestic politics of the United States and whether it could accommodate actually generating as much class grievance, in a sense, as it did by the incorporation of China into the the World Trade Organization and the world economy um, more generally. There was a kind of sense, I think, and in a way, I suppose that that goes back to the kind of comforting assumptions that third-way politicians, as they call themselves, like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton had, but there was no alternative on the left. And they didn't then think that actually those class grievances might get expressed in ways 
perhaps for the right, particularly I think in this respect in the in the United States. I suspect that there was some naivety in the geopolitical sphere itself, in the sense that that they thought that actually that the global economy would actually act as a constraining force, like on what China could do. I mean, if you if you go back, like say to the middle of the two thousands, you had say someone like Lawrence Summers, Larry Summers, saying that what existed between the U.S. and China was a balance of financial terror. So they might be at odds with each other, but because China was basically acting as the United States creditor, and because the United States was acting as China's big export market, and they were currencies were bound together through the set of dynamics that all that generated that neither of them could inflict real harm on each other. And that isn't a kind of particularly cosy way of thinking about like what the first part of the 2000s were like. But it, it does start from the premise, I think, that, that economic interdependencies uh, actually mean that there's a limit to how much geopolitical belligerence that there can be. And I think that assumption turned out not to be correct for various reasons. I mean, I think you could say that even in like 2008, that it, it wasn't correct in terms of the damage that China could do by withdrawing um, credit to Fannie Mae and um, Freddie Mac, the two big American mortgage corporations that were in good part financed by the, um, the, the Japanese and Chinese um, central banks. And it's also the case that in the age of QE that China's influence as a creditor to the United States was obviously much, much less than it was before um, QE came about, where it really mattered, like essentially at the interest at which China was willing to lend to the United States. That mattered a lot less once you're into quantitative easing. Maybe just coming back on, on the point you made about, you know, the industrial policy and it, it being part of the focuses on uh, addressing that, um, that was some of the fallout of, of globalization in terms of manufacturing jobs, etc. And I guess one of the things we've also seen in, in the last few years is, you know, if you go back to the early 2010s, the, the focus was all around austerity and the need for, for, for fiscal discipline and, you know, you the Rogoff and Reinhardt paper about debt to GDP ratios, etc. I mean, that's not something you hear about these days at all. You know, late 2010s, we had modern um, monetary theory. And, you know, we, we've during COVID, governments wrote a lot of checks and it feels like we've got used to more uh, expansionary and, and accommodative fiscal policy. Is that, again, is that a, a kind of a natural reaction to what we've seen over the last number of years, uh, these kind of structural trends you highlight in the book? And do you expect that to continue? Or at some point, will we see a shift back to kind of more disciplined uh, uh, fiscal policies? I think that this is like a, a really interesting question. Um, if you go back to about this time last year, so sort of September into October of 2022, and you think about Liz Truss's premiership, and even in a way, I think in the run-up to that, I don't think it really just started actually when she became prime minister. You could see a certain nervousness taking hold in financial um, markets because once the um, 
Fed had pivoted to interest rate rises and other central banks were um, following um, suit, there was that sense, and I remember writing about it myself, that we were going to find out like where the limit of interest rate rises lay without causing very considerable financial market like instability to the point of like systemic um, crisis. And then Liz Truss and Quasi Quarton tried their um, fiscal experiment, let's just call it uh, that, and it went wrong very, very um, quickly. And the whole issue of, of interest rates in relation to pension funds was obviously like part of that um, story. And I think you can see something like in the sort of the regional banks thing um, that there was earlier in the year in the United States where it kind of flickered again. Now, one way of looking at where we are now would be, well, this is something that looked like it got the potential for considerable trouble and has turned out not really to be the case and that actually there's still pretty big fiscal space. I've got an open mind about that. It's been made easier for central banks in the last six months than it was because the more direct inflation pressures from energy have fallen away. Now, that, I think, is not to say that they might not come back again. And where China is going on gas, and in, in general, perhaps the state of the Chinese economy is, is going to be like an important like, part of that. So a weaker China will probably keep that source of inflation at bay, and then that means that we go a little bit longer, some time longer perhaps, before we run into like, okay, what's the point where central banks want to be raising rates and they really run into a serious risk of financial market instability? I mean, it's obviously, as you say, it's, it's, it, we, we haven't had that, that pressure in terms of, of, of debt markets. You know, obviously we, we had it briefly in, in terms of the, the UK case, but, but, but not more broadly. I mean, it does, it does raise the, the, this kind of brings us into this whole area of kind of the longer term outlook for, for kind of bond yields, et cetera. And, you know, we had secular stagnation, you know, in the last decade, and now we're moving into this period, you know, and, and I've seen this, you know, the, the question and a little bit that's come out of uh, Jackson Hole as well is, is this question around our star, or the, you know, the neutral rate of interest and, and will bond yields be higher over time now, which is an important question for, for financial markets. And I guess a lot of that does depend on, you know, will we see stronger investment demand over time, which I guess links to the, those industrial policies as and the, the kind of the, you know, whether, whether we're seeing more active fiscal policy more more generally. I mean, do, do you have a perspective on on that question of, you know, is kind of the, the, the secular stagnation era behind us and will this decade look kind of fundamentally different? And, and I guess a key part of this as well possibly will be, are, will the greening of the global economy be for real or not? I mean, if we're going to use a shorthand of secular stagnation, I'm not really convinced the secular stagnation is behind us. I think that the energy system in all its aspects, so the existing fossil fuel-centered energy regime plus the energy transition or the aspiring energy revolution really, uh, have got dynamics within them that make it really quite difficult for economies to, where certainly advanced economies to grow very rapidly. And I think that China has obviously got a set of issues on top of that as well. So when I was 
writing disorder, my general sense was that the fundamental problem around oil prices, if we just reduce it to that, was either that they were too high for consumers, and that those periods we basically tip the world in a recession, world economy in a recessionary direction, if not over into recession like in 2008, although they were too low for producers, um, 2014, 2015, that tended to cause absolute havoc in various oil producing countries, not just a country like Iraq or Venezuela in 2014, but all that turmoil in, in Saudi Arabia. Remember when there were members of the royal family being like tortured in a hotel in uh, Riyadh, that that was bound up with that um, problem. And it still seems to me, and we saw that, I think, in the second half of 2021, before the Omicron variant hit and really stalled economic recovery, uh, again, that every time you get a some bit of pace in economic growth, don't you run into rising energy prices of the kind that then depress economic activity again. And I don't think that we're really out of that. And I think if we then tie that to the attempted energy revolution, because that requires huge amounts of present tense energy to be used to achieve it, then it can't escape from that problem either. So even somewhere down the road, it can be a driver of growth in its own right without running into the fossil fuel energy constraint issue that we're not we're not there yet and so that, that there's kind of there's some trap i think that's that's going on um that means that it's quite hard to get beyond sluggish um, growth now i know that's not the way and i mean that being the energy centered centric explanation is not the way that secular nation is usually explained but that's what I think you get added to the analysis of the problem um, that secular stagnation is describing by bringing energy into it. Okay. So it sounds like, I mean, it, it, you, the, the kind of the, the global economy is caught a, a little bit in, in the sense that we're not seeing the, you know, oil prices maybe aren't high enough or, or the concerns around it, uh, around the transition aren't enough to, to motivate more investment in, 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 in the space. And at the same time, um, whenever you, 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 you do see a, a surge in growth, oil, oil prices will pop, but then the, the, that will circumvent that kind of the economic expansion. So from that perspective, I mean, it sounds like you see kind of this, these periodic spikes in oil prices as something that we should expect on, on an ongoing basis. Uh, would that be fair to say? Yes. I mean, I think some caveats got to be put into that. I mean, I think a lot here does obviously depend upon like China. Um, because if you look really up since about the turn of the century, say about somewhere between 40 and 50%, probably 40%, nearer 40% perhaps, of the growth in oil demand has come from China. So that what happens in, in, in China in this respect is, is, is crucial. Now, the thing we've got to bear in mind, though, is, is that as well, that China's growth, deterioration in China's growth prospects impacts the rest of the world economy too. If we go back to a couple of years before the um, pandemic, I think it was the phrase something like synchronized global growth or something like that was being used by the IMF, I think, in 2017 which was basically coming off China recovering from the financial crisis it had, had in 2016. We get to 2019, we're in synchronized, global synchronized slowdown, I think something like that was the 
um, expression. And again, that was like the slowing down of the of the the Chinese economy. So there's again a kind of trap there because on the one hand, China's weak growth helps on the energy side of things, but China's weak growth doesn't help more generally in macroeconomic terms. And that sense that there are sort of quite a number of like traps where something, if you like, that's beneficial happens, but then it has a consequence, a systemic consequence that is negative, that that is quite common in the set of problems that we face at the moment. Yeah. And um, I mean, you touched on, obviously on China, you mentioned Saudi as well. And, and obviously we've had this kind of shift maybe in relationships and relations between the US and Saudi over the last while. And at the same time, um, China appearing to be getting warmer towards Saudi. And obviously we had the BRICS meeting uh, recently and, and you know, moved the expansion of the BRICS as well. So is that, from you know, obviously from a US perspective, is that a risk that we're seeing this realignment in, in, in those relations? And is that, again, part of a, a potential risk factor for um, oil markets and energy markets uh, looking ahead? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think this is quite complicated, but I think you can certainly see that China has made a series of moves over the last few years, probably, say, five years, but intensified in the last few, really to try to strengthen its position in the Middle East. And in a way, it's, it's followed, albeit for a somewhat different purpose, the playbook that Russia used in the middle of the 2000 and or around the, the the middle of the middle years, let's just call it of the 2010s, which is to try to get closer to everybody, regardless of what their bilateral relations are with the state that you're trying to get closer to. So, i.e., you can get closer both to Saudi Arabia and to Iran and to Israel. Uh, and I, I think you, you can certainly see that at work with China on the Saudi Iran question obviously that they played some part at least in brokering the restoration of diplomatic relations between um, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, if you look at the the Huawei question, it would look like um, not just Saudi Arabia but United Arab Emirates have really gone China's way on that rather than the American way um, on that. So there is a way of reading I think like what's going on is is that Saudi Arabia has become less close to the United States and closer to um, China. I don't think that's all there is to be said about it. I don't really see much evidence, say, of Saudi Arabia buying Chinese financial assets. But China really thinks it has deep strategic interests in the Middle East and that it wants to reduce its maritime vulnerability in the Strait of Hormuz and that an important part of being as close to Iran as it now is, is to try to exercise some influence in that. And those waters veer Iran also to some extent is its relationship with Oman. So I think that we are living in a geopolitical world in this respect where the United States remains Obviously, the naval power that has primary responsibility for keeping oil moving through the Persian Gulf, but China isn't exactly just saying we're going to rely on that from the US like permanently. So I think that whilst I'm not really of the view that China is 
or China or the BRICS are, are really in a position to develop an alternative to the dollar, which is obviously another way in which his argument, as you know, is, is made. I don't really see that. I think that the dollar is still too fundamental to the world economy and the banking, international banking in particular, for that to happen. I do think that there are moves that China in particular has made, certainly when allied with Russia, that mean that the Middle East is a lot more difficult for the US. And it was even, say, six, seven years ago. So like in sort of the time of the beginnings of the Syrian, um, oh, that's 10 years ago now, beginning of the Syrian crisis. Okay. You, I mean, you touched on, on the dollar there, and I mean, it, that is another dimension of this, presumably, in, in terms of, you know, possible internationalization of the renminbi. Um, whether that is something China really wants or not is, I guess, is, is debatable. But certainly, regardless of whether they want to internationalize the renminbi, they certainly want to kind of de-emphasize the, the, the dollar, it, w- it would seem. But I mean, there's been speculation around either paying for oil in renminbi or pricing it in renminbi. Is that, do you think that a significant... Uh, trend or is it more optics and at the margin that, that that we're seeing that? I think it's at the margin. Obviously, this has been a Chinese ambition for like some time, but I, I think that the, the bottom line issue here is is that China doesn't have an internationally convertible currency for all purposes. And so long as it, it doesn't, there's a pretty limited motive for anyone, however friendly they want to be with China and how any antagonistic they are to the United States. Um, really to want as payment for hold, ha- handing over actual commodity, oil or gas, actually wanting renminbi um, for that. So they can be sort of things that make certain elements of the transaction easier to handle maybe, but I, I, I don't think that China can really challenge the dollar's primacy in this respect. Um, so long as the Chinese currency isn't fully convertible. And obviously a big part of the book is about, I mean, I guess a third of the book is about the economic, the international monetary uh, order and, and the, the history of that. And, you know, you talk about, um, or you write about, um, you know, Bretton Woods and, and the system since then. And I guess, you know, through all that period, we, we have had these periodic, you know, concerns about the role of the dollar and its reserve status and, and would it be sustained? And you, and you mentioned, obviously, kind of the 2006-2007 period where you had this Bretton Woods II type arrangement of, you know, the Chinese surplus being recycled into treasuries. Um, if anything, you know, it seems like the crises have strengthened the dollar's anchor position, you know, with the, with the, you know, the development of these dollar swaps. Um, is there anything on the horizon to, to unwind that? Or, or, or as you say, it, it seems like the, 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 the dollar's structural place in the international order is, is as strong as ever. I'd say it's actually stronger, really, for the reason that you said, uh, which is the place of the dollar swaps and the, the fact that the euro dollar system doesn't look like it really functions over any period of time anyway, um, without the uh, credibility of the, the dollar swaps. Uh, if you look at American monetary like power in the years immediate years before 2007 2008 um, I think years ways in which you could say that the United States was somewhat constrained in the ways in which it could deal with monetary policy um, I mean I would say that in 2004 2005 for instance 
that it had to worry about what China was doing in terms of buying U.S. Treasury bonds, Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac bonds and securities, what China's impact on oil prices um, was. If you look at, say, 2015, 2016, you've got the Fed having the ability really to cause a first-class financial crisis for China simply by raising interest rates by 0.25. And even before, actually, that rise, actually just the, the idea of it was enough to destabilize things. But that seems to me a really rather different like world. If we look back then to, if we go to March 2020, where there, you know, there was a pretty big financial crisis. It's kind of forgotten about, I think, often now, partly because it just happened in such a short period of time. But it was almost like every aspect of the Eurozone crisis and the financial crisis from 2008 were all compressed into like a few-week period. The only player that could rescue the system, so to speak, was was the Fed. Uh, and, it, and it did so, including by providing a backstop for China if it was really necessary. Not a dollar swap, but an indirect way of dealing with um, the the problem. So I I think that there's I I don't think I would quite go far as to say perhaps I would be willing, but I really thought about it to say America's never been had this much financial and monetary power. But it's this is the one area where American power is really not in decline. Okay, and I mean throughout the book, there's kind of references back to the 1970s, and I suppose a lot of the structural trends. Maybe you have the origins. Back then, I mean, the 1970s was a period of monetary strain. You know, um, if you read Paul Volcker's book, he was kind of permanently going around Europe trying to shore up confidence in the dollar in in, in that period. Um, I mean, I guess your perspective on that, what's different about that period versus now is, is it the, it, does it come back to energy again that, that back then? You had the energy, uh, you didn't have the shale boom and, and you had the US as, as an energy consumer or, or, or how, you know, I mean. I think there are a number of differences. I mean, I think there's obviously one one that's nothing to do with energy, really, which is to do with the fact that there was a much more significant trade union movement, not just actually in European countries, but in the United States too. So um, once energy inflation kicked in, the trade unions were able to, or at least some trade unions anyway, were able to make wage demands and get secure wage increases that then acted as a further inflationary um, pressure. Uh, and although we there's a little bit of that gone on, um, I mean, a little bit you can see in the UK, I think perhaps. Generally, I wouldn't say that we have seen the kind of... We, we can't because the trade unions were in many ways in Europe politically defeated in the, for the, and then in, 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 in the 1980s. So they simply don't have the, the bargaining power in the face of an inflation episode that they that they did then, I think there were two differences on the energy. Well, three differences actually on the energy side. The first of them is, is as you said, Alan, which is is the seventies was a decade in which the United States had very very quickly to adjust to being a large, the world's largest oil import. Started off just moving to importing oil at significant scale, and before long was the world's largest oil um, importer. The United States is not domestically self-sufficient in oil, but it is in in, in um, gas, um, and the volume in which it has to export is not what it was anywhere near the the peak in pre-shale in terms of uh, in terms of um, imports. The second energy difference, oh, sorry, that's the third one. The second energy difference then is is that in the seventies, 
a few countries aside, high ca- per capita energy consumption was a Western affair. Uh, it wasn't Asian. And that isn't the world in which we, we uh, live now. Uh, it isn't just China and it's India. Uh, most of the world's most populous countries, as we know, like are in Asia. And when you combine the fact that the 70s saw the Western countries, oil companies, lose control of the energy resources of the Middle East through resource nationalism, and that hasn't changed since. Then you add into that the fact that Asian energy consumption is what it is now and the size of the population um, involved. That isn't just in itself makes the world really different than it was in the 70s. And then, although obviously there were moves to encourage low-carbon energy in the 70s, I think if you look at the um, our world in data, you can see right at the end of the 70s, wind power appearing in Denmark for the first time in an energy-like mix. There wasn't an attempt at an energy revolution in the, in the 1970s. There was attempts at um, getting people to consume less energy. There was attempts at energy conservation. There were attempts to develop alternative forms of um, energy, but not essentially let's re-create the entire energy basis of our material civilization, which is like where we are now. And that just that fact alone, I think, means that we're not in the position of the, the 70s. That doesn't mean there aren't any things, patterns that we can see then and are still there now. But the underlying context, particularly where energy is concerned, I think is 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 like magnitudes different. Okay, just conscious of time, and I just there was one other topic I wanted to get to get your your perspective on. Obviously, the book you you, you wrote the book to explain a lot of the phenomena of the twenty tens, and obviously Trump Trump's win in in twenty sixteen was one of those seminal events. And and obviously, as you look at the the, the political situation in the US at the moment, it's you know unprecedented is, is the word that we always say. Um, and you talked about how, you know, the Biden administration using fiscal policy to try and boost, I guess, their, that kind of working class vote, I guess you could say. Do you think, are, are we headed for ongoing um, civil discontent in the US or what's your perspective on, on where things are at there? I think that we are. I mean, it's very difficult to see how this election in the United States next year can be anything but a pretty destabilizing experience for, for the Republic, American Republic, I mean, by that and for its citizens in, in some sense in having to participate in it. I, I don't mean by that that I think that Biden administration, Biden doesn't have any chance of getting re-elected, all the Democrats don't have a chance of being re-elected if Biden turns out not to be the um, candidate. What I mean is, is that when you've had the experience of the Trump presidency in which it ended in the way in which it did. And now he, you know, subject to these multiple legal um, prosecutions, and yet he still appears to be the leading candidate for the Republican, like, nomination. That's a whole other territory. That isn't like repeating, like, 2016. That's going somewhere, like, darker, I would say. Just, I mean, Trump in 2016, in some sense, he was an insurgent candidate who hijacked the Republican Party. And he was able to do that because he sort of spelled out certain unpalatable things about the American Republic at that um, time and was able to address 
anger of the kind that we've talked about like already and also uh, make some fairly crude, uh, unpleasant appeals to nativist um, sentiments. But in a way that that kind of had some kind of history to it. I mean, complicated because of Trump's personality, because Trump wasn't a since start as a politician. But for instance, I remember I remember a lot of time people talking about, I remember doing it myself when I talk in politics, say, uh, of like the relationship between the American Populist Party and Trump, the American Populist Party at the beginning, end of the 19th century. It wasn't the same, but there were certain things you could say, look, it's a little bit like that. But yeah, I'm not sure that you really find anything now with this Trump candidacy for 2024. And you can say, oh, it's a little bit like that one there. Or we can see that like playing out. This is like not like that. This this is something else because of what happened and what Trump did during his presidency and the fact that the Republican Party does not seem able to have recovered from that, doesn't seem able to recover from from what happened. Interesting. Well we could we could get you back again for a whole a whole hour long special on Trump and US politics, I think, uh, based on that brief response. But Thanks very much for, for coming on today, Helen. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, so make sure to follow Helen's work uh, because, as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly interesting global macro world and more, more important than ever to stay informed. So from all of us here at Top Leaders Unplugged, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back soon with more content, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.